Welcome to Still Here, a show dedicated to exploring the inspirations and motivations helping true believers and builders push through the bear market to usher in the next wave of Web3 adoption and innovation. I'm Alexander Guy, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Helena Geiger. Helena is the co-founder of Salsa, a community platform for live events powered by Web3. She went from zero technical knowledge to teaching coding, building an edtech platform, becoming a product manager, and joining a startup accelerator. When her own AI project failed, Helena jumped headfirst down the Web3 rabbit hole in 2021 after seeing the challenges her mom faced as an author. A true renaissance woman, Helena is a certified dive teacher, wannabe DJ, and spent two months driving a car rally across 27 countries from London to Mongolia. Helena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm incredibly honored to be here today to be guest number one of episode number one of season one. This is season just amazing. One. The absolute first I one. I when I was making my list, you were you were top of the the, the potential guest list. So uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. I feel honored. Shoot, like just getting right into it, uh, because I have to say when I when I sent through the the, the bio request. I was not expecting the the windy or seemingly winding road that, that brought us to this point. Um, it's definitely a, an interesting an interesting background to say the least. Should we talk a little bit about your crypto origin story? Like it seems like yeah, maybe maybe not the like conventional degen. I bought some ETH in twenty seventeen type of approach. Yeah, no, zero. I think my origin story into the tech world, but also into crypto is really unique and it's super windy. I generally think, you know, careers are often not like a straight line up. And normally, if you look at someone, you'll see that there was turns and twists. And for me, that's definitely true. Um, and the turns and twists happen really quickly for me. So that's why there's a lot in there, although I'm not actually that old yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think maybe it makes sense to start with my career journey and then how that translated into yeah. into crypto as well. I actually, you know, went to uni to study urban design and urban planning in London, so something totally unrelated. I studied that because I was just fascinated by cities, like these like huge organisms in a sense and how to make them better. And I fell into smart cities really quickly as like the interesting field for me. That led me to work in business development um, at a German unicorn in LA. And I kind of got deeper and deeper into the tech world and realized pretty quickly that I actually want to build tech products and not physical cities. And so that's when I quit my job, moved back to London. I learned how to code. I um, started teaching coding. I built my first miniature, I would say mini startup, uh, really in quotation marks because I was super young. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was making every single mistake that I could be making on this planet. Um, and it was a platform where you could practice interviewing with other people, applying for similar types of jobs. Because I had this belief around bringing people together in order to actually get good at this. I saw all of my friends struggle with their job interviews. And I myself was trying to land a product manager role that I really had to prep for. And you know, practicing with a book in front of you, you're never going to get good at interviewing, which is a superhuman interaction. And so that's what I built uh, with my newly found coding skills. The platform barely worked, but <laughs> that's what I, what I normally call my first MVP. startup. Yeah, <laughs> MVP. And I then became a PM, um, was actually working in B2B SaaS, like zero passion for the industry I was in. It was like 
big clients, like huge clients and like super complex um, software in the background, but uh, loved, you know, the idea of building tech products and being part of a, of a tech team that is like taking ideas and customer demands and actually putting them into practice, like doing that for the first time felt amazing. Uh, I was then approached by a startup incubator in London called Entrepreneur First uh, that saw my profile. And I think they actually saw my interview platform, like that little startup-y project that I had before. They were like, hey, we really believe that you should be building a company. You should come here and, and try this out. And for those of the listeners who are not familiar with Entrepreneur First, it's a pre-team, pre-idea incubator. So you join alone when you're like, a talent, I guess, and have lots of ideas. And then they get 80 people into a cohort and half of them are technical and half of them are not. And then it's a bit like a reality TV dating show where <laughs> you basically match with each other, try build a company together and see if it works. It's, it's a bit like, you know, in the UK, we have Love Island. It's a bit like that. Um, like just like dating show, but for nerds. <laughs> it's a startup studio. I think uh, some, like there's a couple in Paris where we're, you know, there's, there's a couple in Paris, this idea of like finding someone who has like the entrepreneurial, like grit combination of maybe like grit, drive, creativity, uh, passion, et cetera. And then like finding them somebody who can help them build what they want to do and, and putting the right founding team together. It's a pretty cool concept actually. It's a really cool concept. I think for for me personally, the big mistake that I made is I arrived there just basically interested in absolutely everything. And I didn't take a step back before going into it to actually reflect on like, you know, what is the problem space that excites me enough to go through the pain of building a company in it? And so that led to me building like, you know, this like AI healthcare product where neither I'm that into AI, especially what we were building. Um, it was like computer vision. And in the end, like I'm a product person. I love building products. And when you're building in that kind of sphere, it's more about the algorithm. So the interface doesn't matter. Like the product experience doesn't matter. And then secondly, health, it was like health um, and like physiotherapy. And I've never had any issues. I've never been to see a physio. Uh, so it just was no match at all. And so I was doing that, um, left the incubator three days before raising money. Um, because I was like, there's absolutely no way I'm going to do 10 years doing this. And I need to find what interests me. And I actually wanted to do like a self sabbatical, if that makes sense. Like just take some time off and follow all of my interests. Uh, I had this vision that as humans, we, if you, if, if you picture a piano, right? Like a grand piano, we're always just playing here. Like the first few notes, like 10, 10 fingers. But what if we broaden our interests and like explore the whole length of the piano and like the songs we could create with that? I had that vision for myself that I just want to stretch my boundaries of what I'm interested in and take a bit of space for that. Um, and the first thing that I fell into was Web3. <laughs> and that was the first thing where I was like, the first thing that I want to explore in my self-sabbatical is going to Web3. And I was extremely skeptical at the beginning. I just started reading and reading and... I think what made me skeptical at the time was A, all the financialization of it and B, the way that people talk about it, I think. 
So that was like, you know, mid 2021 or end of 2021. And I felt like all the language out there was written in a way that just was designed to scare people off, right? <laughs> I mean, it was so technically complex and you had to understand so much in order to be a part of it. And that was something where I almost, I would say, didn't enter the rabbit hole completely because it just felt like this huge mountain that I had to cross. And it was a conversation or like a lot of conversations with my mother, who's an author, that actually pushed me into Web3. And this is because she is an author, always had this problem um, that, you know, she's written 20 books in her lifetime around lots of different topics. Some of them are bestsellers and she has no idea who reads those books, like absolutely no clue because that data around who your customers in the end are when you're in the creative industries just doesn't sit with you. It doesn't exist. And when I was giving her like some essays that I was reading from actually was like Legion from Variant that was talking about the creator economy and things like that. She immediately was like, oh my gosh, this is the future. I want to do an NFT project for my books. And I was like, wow, if my like nearly six year old mother who can barely use a laptop is that excited about Web3, then there must be something here. And I'm maybe just not seeing it yet as clearly as she is because I haven't experienced the problem firsthand. And so that that's what got me over the edge where I was like, okay, let's just do it. Let's just go into the space, fully commit to it 100% for a bit, see what happens. And then, yeah, I didn't plan further than that. And within the first like few weeks of actually making that decision, I ended up at a Web3 hackathon in Miami, very random. And I was at this VC event overhearing a woman next to me talk about book NFTs. And at that stage, there was literally no single blog post out there about book NFTs. It was a space that was not talked about at all. And so I went up to her and I was like, hey, what are you working on? And that's my now co-founder, Grace. She was working on a book NFT project with another potential co-founder that kind of didn't work out. And... Yeah, that's how we met. So thank you, book NFTs. So going from like sort of a, let's say, a, a what did you say, Love Island version of founder matching to like genuinely matching with somebody based on a, a common in- inspiration and interest, uh, or at least like a, a, a thread they want to pull on. Uh, is that fair? 100%. To, uh, yeah. That is totally fair to say. And I think we also, and this was really driven by Grace because she had been, um, on a on a co-founder search for some time too. You know, she's a software engineer. She did a few years at Palantir and then left that to go into startups. And I think we both had our own experiences of what are we looking for in a co-founder? How do we design those first few you know weeks and months of working together that are so crucial? Because in the end, people say it's like a marriage. I'd say it's more than a marriage. I speak to Grace more than I speak to anyone else in the world the problems you're facing together are really intense and um it's super important to vet this carefully and so i think what we did and this was all like inspired by grace like it was her like pushing for this and what was super different than what i did at the incubator was stress test the co-founder relationship before even thinking about like ideas to build together so what we did after having had dinner literally just two times Uh, She flew to Austria, which is where I'm from, 
We spent two weeks in a mountain cabin in the absolute middle of nowhere, building a mini project together, almost like a miniature hackathon with just two people. And the idea was, let's see how that goes. Like A, spending 24 seven together in the same house. And B, um, are we more productive together? Is this more fun together? Like, do we, do we feel like our skills are really complementary? And what we built back then was actually a way to get people into Web3 in a really easy way that requires zero financial anything where the first thing you, you do is not set up a wallet, but uh, the first thing you do is you receive something from a friend. You receive a shout out. And we created like shout outs as NFTs that you could send to friends. Um, and our whole inspiration there was like, well, if a friend tells you to do something, that's the best way to try out something new. And so why should it always start with like, you have to read a thousand articles about Web3 and you have to get up, get a wallet and put like real money into it and all of that, which is super scary for the normie user. And we're like, what if a friend just sends you something and you get like the aha moment of, wow, I received something nice before we asked you to set up a wallet. So that's what we built. Um, our project went well. And yeah, the rest is history in terms of our co-founding story. Nice one. Yeah, I, w- I want to go back to something that you said, because I... Um... Although our origin story, I don't think can be nearly like, just as we noted, it can't be exactly the same. Um, I, I kind of had a similar experience or at least vibe about about crypto and, and even if it wasn't called then Web3, which is like the language and the people that the ways that people described it um, seeming like seeming like it was intentionally made to be obscure. I think that probably another way to talk about this is like non-inclusive language. Um, and I'm wondering, like, (laughs) why do you think there's this, this, cause I still think this is the case is that a lot of times the way that we, we, you know, as the people in this space, the people building it, we, it's almost like we intentionally make things complicated so that people will not, you know, a, a person who's not totally committed and driven like you were to sort of like, you know, go down this, this, this path, explore it to its, um, you know, to its, to its, to its end. Um, someone who's le- less motivated just simply won't, um, you know, won't, won't take these steps. And I actually think that, you know, the majority of people are probably like this, even if they ultimately could benefit from crypto in the end or from like web three as a concept. Um, they oftentimes seems like they almost are like pulled away from it. I mean, a good example is like gamers, right? Gamers are like actively, anti-NFT, which is a baffling concept to me because they seem like the types of people who would really benefit from being like owners, co-owners of this community and, 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 and you know, kind of ecosystem that they're engaging with. So like, what, what do you think it is about like crypto and Web3 in general that, that, that sort of creates this type of like jargonism, I guess is a good way to put it. Or is it jargon? I don't know. Let's unpack the language piece. Why do you think it's so hard for people to I don't know, get understand, get excited by, understand the benefits of, like, why is language so hard in Web3? Yeah, this is such a good question. And I do have a lot of thoughts on it. I think personally, it's the wrong expectation that we have as an industry is the first, first of all, and then I'll go into why I think that we have that. So what's the wrong expectation is that people need to learn about a technology in order to participate and use it. That's wrong. That's totally flawed. Think about when you were, I don't know, like a teenager and you set up your first email account. There was absolutely no one who told you 
that the protocol behind Gmail or whatever you are using is SMTP and that it's actually decentralized. No one, absolutely no one said that. What you just did was like, hey, I want to use email, so I'm going to like set up this account so I can send a message to people. That was it. And I think that that's, that's the first thing where there's like a mismatch between the expectation that us as an industry have on people joining and coming in is always like, oh, you need to understand the technology. You need to understand what blockchain is. You need to understand what it means for stuff to be on chain. You need to understand composability. And in actual fact, your normie 1 billion users that we're all trying to get into the space really don't care. Like they just don't care. They don't know how a notification arrives on the iPhone. They're just using the iPhone and are happy that they're getting notifications. And I think that that's the big problem. And now if we unpack like, why, why is this happening? I think it's probably just a result of a lot of the people who are early into the space being either absolute tech nerds, right? Like people who really love technology and love talking about these things or be like people who are just driven by financial incentives. And so that means that the things that were being spoken about were either of those two. It's like either, um, you know, financial, like how to get rich quickly, or it was technology. Why is this awesome? Why should we all believe in this ideal, almost like ideology? Like it's almost a religion sometimes when you read this stuff. And I think that that's the issue. And I think it's slowly improving, but not fast enough. Um, I think we need to start talking about what you can do and just leave away any expectation about understanding the technology behind it. Grace always says, and I love the way she phrases this, um, about Salsa and about like how we see Web3, for us, it's an implementation detail, which doesn't mean that it's not important. It's a really important implementation detail, but it also means that our users don't have to know about the implementation details of how our product works. Like they can, they can ask us, and they, they can get answers from us, but we're not going to force it down their throat. And so I think that that's in the end, like where this communication and language barrier comes in um, that we're all experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. What do you think? Well, this implementation detail is a really good way to put it. The way that I've heard it described, and I, I think it makes a lot of sense to me is, you know, when you get in a car to drive it, you, you, sit in the seat, you put the key in the ignition, you turn the, 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 the key and you drive off. You don't have to understand all the different components of the engine that is mm. powering this car. Like you don't have to be an expert in internal combustion to get the car down the street. And I think that you're absolutely right that the industry itself has been fascinated. It's like if Henry Ford, when he was creating the car, was obsessed with communicating to people all the ways that the internal combustion engine worked instead of trying to tell people that they can get to point A to point B faster. And I think that we we probably as a space are fascinated by the like inner workings of the engine and less convinced so far about the like merits of this like thing that is on the outside and actually gets people to to where they want to go. So I, I think you're totally right. And the, the implementation detail is a, is, is a fascinating way to put that. I love your analogy about the card, by the way. <laughs> I it's, love that it's, because it it's makes like, sense, I've right? always because been like using a, the email example, but that makes total sense as well. 
Well, it, it, I think there's a lot of like paradigm shift, you know, I guess you could say that about email too, but like the, the, the car makes a lot of sense to me because like the engine itself is just like a massively complicated, extremely, you know, arcane subject that very few people actually understand. Um, and yet everybody drives a car <laughs> or lots of people drive yeah. a car. And, and I think that that's probably is an industry where we, 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 we need to move is like, you know, let's get more to the end user and end benefits. And I actually think that, you know, to, to something we talked about off, off camera, this, this idea of like the, one of the main critiques from normies, journalists, whatever, VCs is like, where's the real use case? Where's the real use case? I think a lot of this comes from us putting the like engine up front as an industry, instead of saying like, oh, look what's going on, like what you can do with this, with this technology. Here's where you can go. Um, yeah, so th that I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. And, and I like Grace's implementation detail uh, as a good way to say that. I wanted to change gears really quickly, though, because I think another I've found one of the stranger um, like paradoxes of Web3 is that despite being an extremely terminally online space, one of the most powerful um, like venues for innovation, for um, networking, for ideas, for everything around the space. I really think that IRL in real life interaction is just like incredibly powerful in this space, maybe more so than like any other industry. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense because like, you know, you mentioned working in SaaS. I also come from a SaaS background and it's like, you know, a SaaS conference or like people really like fired up and energized to go to like a SaaS conference? <laughs> oh probably not, you know, and other industries are probably worse. Like, man, how crazy was that like ed tech, you know, that ed tech conference in like Milan yeah. or something like that? I don't know. But you, we first met at a relatively small dinner that you organized in Denver. And I think you do these dinners, you know, regularly in different places in London where you, where you, where you spend a lot of time, but it's something you've done quite a lot. And, and I'm curious, like, why, like, why are you doing that? <laughs> why, why do you do this? <laughs> why the dinners? Why spending time, you know, sort of organizing and, and, and curating these types of events? Like, why do you think that this is worth your time as a founder, as a person in the space? Like, why? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, I've been hosting these dinners for a year now. We've just had our one year anniversary. The series is actually called Why Web3. Very topical for this podcast. Nice one. I <laughs> and, didn't know that actually. <laughs> um, I'm co-organizing them with a friend of mine called Kalada, who comes much more from the Web3 art world. So she used to head up Web3 at this gallery called Superblue. Maybe you've been, if you've been to Miami during Art Basel, they always have the most amazing like experiential art installations. And it was two things that got us to start this dinner series. The first one being that we felt that, you know, the bigger meetups and networking events can be very hit and miss. And now I'm not really talking about something like ETH Denver or DEF CON, which is not hit and miss because you know that all the amazing people are literally traveling there with the shared purpose of meeting each other, talking about the space, talking about the technology, which is just awesome. So that aside, but you know, there's these meetups happening locally in cities all the time where it's like a uh, London Web3 meetup or whatever. And they were extremely hit and miss, very uncurated, way too big, really hard to actually get anything out of it. 
And um, I think when you're building in such a new space, you want to have community around you. And to answer a bit your question as well as why is IRL such an important component of the industry? I think that's that. Like we are building a future that doesn't exist yet. We're building a market, as you say, where our industry as a whole doesn't really have product market fit yet. And in the end, humans are community animals. Like we like to be in a community. And I think getting through all of that is so much easier with people surrounding you who are, you know, interested in the same space, um, pushing it forward. And that's why we started building these dinners. And the, the second thing in our mission around it was also bringing the tech community and the, the more creative side of Web3 together. Because to us, it was crazy that I was going to DEFCON in East Denver and she was going to like Art Basel in Miami. And there was literally no overlap between the two scenes. When in actual fact, the people building the tech and the people who are like creatives and using the tech should have a lot of dialogue. And so our format from day one of starting this was very small. So we pick 13 guests for each dinner. We host them every month and um, a mix of Web3 tech people and Web3 creatives. The way that looks like is always like a bunch of founders, a bunch of operators, uh, one or two investors, never too many. And then some creatives from the space as well. And we do a seating plan. I'm a huge fan of a seating plan. The seating plan is designed so that we really, you know, think about this beforehand, who would benefit from meeting which person. And we try and, you know, get them next to each other. So there is an exchange. And we always sit people next to each other who don't know each other yet. And where we think that the likelihood of them meeting outside of our dinner series would be really small. And then the last thing that we do, because it's that small, it's 13 people. Um, we do a really fun way of introducing each other, like towards the middle of the dinner, where we ask people to introduce the person on their like left or right or whatever. And that just gets the whole table to start being in conversation with each other. And so you walk out of it having truly met 13 people on a level that feels much more personal than just being at a happy hour together, because you've had like a, you know, three hour dinner together, you've laughed, um, you've had good conversation and that's how we do them. And I think it's really this like bringing together the community, bringing together people who wouldn't meet otherwise, but would benefit from knowing each other. That's our motivation for it. And it's not, not really like a business thing. Like I would say sometimes it's useful for salsa and what we're building, but I'm really also doing this out of, um, yeah, this personal conviction that you need to have a community around you and that we need to foster dialogue between those two groups that don't have enough dialogue. Yeah. It's, um, I actually think that, uh, especially for like some of the people who, who've been around for a few years now or, or even longer, um, because we're all online, you know, there's a, um, I think there's a belief that like this industry, like the people building and working in the space committed to it is like a pretty big group, but at least I've found that like, it's actually pretty small. And, you know, some of the people that I'm closest to in this space are the ones that I routinely see at these different conferences that have, you know, we've spoken on each other's podcasts or, or, you know, whatever been guests on some, uh, Twitter space, you know, there's a lot of actually cross pollination, I guess, in, in this industry. And the, the dinner format is an interesting one for me because it's like a dinner isn't, is designed to be about something beyond like 
I am building this new protocol or I have a staking project and blah, you know, or this NFT thing, you know, like, like the, the format of a dinner is like inherently designed to get people interacting at a personal level, but not talking about like just the, 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 the sort of boilerplate information. So I think it's, it's, it's interesting because the, the, I guess like the, 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 you know, Elizabeth Warren's of the world, you know, paint this industry as this like, what did she call it? Shadowy super coders. You know, everybody was making fun of this, this term for a while, but my experience is that like, it's actually just some weird assemblage of people who've come from like different entry points. And actually this is one reason why I started the conversation with your origin story, because like, I just find like the windy road that people take to get into this space. One, I really believe no two stories are the same. And I also think that that's actually like good stuff because there's some common, maybe this is the one thing I'm trying to explore in this show at the end is like, what's that common thread that, that, that brought everybody here and keeps us here. Um, and I think that the dinners are, are a good like um, metaphor for that in some ways. Cause it's about something about, it's about something a lot more than just like, um, you know, talking about your job or, or your startup or whatever, you know, there's a lot more humanity there, uh, which is fascinating to me. Um, I guess like that's a good segue. Well, it's a good segue to talk a little bit about salsa in general, because I think that in some ways what y'all are trying to facilitate is a much more human relationship between artists and the fans that consume, you know, their work, which is very, you know, there's definitely a through line to, uh, to your mom's experience, right? Like people are consuming my work, they're reading my work, but I have no way of engaging with them or even understanding who they are. So I, I, I don't know, do you wanna talk a little bit about Salsa's mission and like how that relates to kind of this idea of maybe more human relationship between artists and fans? Is that an apt description, I guess? <laughs> I actually love that. Um, we definitely had human relationship in there some at some point. And I think, yeah, you're so right. In terms of our mission, it's really bringing people together and using Web3 data to do that. So what that means is coming back to this problem of you know my, what my mother had, that isn't unique to her and it's not unique to the book market either. If you, Alex, are a superstar DJ and you have 2 million followers on Instagram, yeah, we can see yeah. that. We can totally see that happening. <laughs> And you have 2 million followers on Instagram and, you know, last night you played in Miami and today you're playing in New York. And if I would ask you, hey, can you point out the hundred people who went to your show in Miami on your Instagram profile? You'd be completely unable to do that. There is absolutely no way. So that data about who attends your shows, it just never reaches you as a musician. Um, and the data about who listens to, to your music, obviously, also doesn't. Um, we have all these pockets where we are interacting with the creative industries around us, but the data is super siloed. And the creator who's actually creating the art doesn't get that data. And so this is really our mission and what we want to fix is we want to give artists, and I'm using artists as a super broad term here because although we're doing a lot in the music industry right now, same goes for books, same goes for a comedian um, or let's say like a cooking star. Whenever there is like lots of places where people interact with your work, that data is what we want to uncover. And we call it making invisible data visible is what we're doing. 
So yeah, that's the mission. And why do we why do we believe that it's important to have that data? Is because in the end, if coming back to the example of you being a superstar DJ, why would you care about the people who came to your shows, right? Why do you want to target them specifically or target is such a negative word, but engage them specifically versus just broadcasting to everyone? Um, it's because they're your most valuable fans. They're the people that travel to see you. They're the people who pay money for your events. And you cannot you cannot know who they are right now. So in actual fact, there's such a mismatch here because of this data black box that as a fan, you also don't get treated the way you should for being you know, a fan of that artist because you're not seen. You're not being seen. You don't have that data to prove that you're a super fan. And you just get treated like any other fan who just follows that person on Instagram. And so it's really a two-sided problem. It's really a problem about like giving people the data in order to be seen and in order to build deeper connection with um, the small segment of your audience that matters the most, which are the people who really engage with your work. Yeah, That's it's, um, I remember a book, I, I've forgotten now who it's by, but it's called The Curve. And it's this like economist who is talking about actually art and like um, artists of all kinds. Uh, and his whole theory is that, you know, the, the 5% of people who love your work the most will not only contribute the most revenue to you as an artist, but they will also bring like the, the other cohorts, like the other 95% are likely to be onboarded by that 5%. So there's this curve of like, you know, the, the, the most, like, I guess the, the, the furthest touch point in terms of maybe like an Instagram follower is like up there at like the whatever 100th percentile, the 99th percentile. Or the or actually the opposite. I'm not. I'm not a mathematician. The the opposite in terms of like the percentile, and then like the ninety <laughs> fifth percentile on the bottom of the curve. You know, this is actually the person who you want to understand. You want to cater towards. He in the book he gives an example of like Trent Reznor with Nine Inch Nails, who like he released albums, you know, years ago. He would release albums that basically catered to like multiple segments of that, like, you know, fan curve, I guess. So there'd be like the person who, you know, whatever, there's a 1099 CD at the time. But then there's like the CD that has like the deluxe edition with like uh, all the B sides and that costs like 40 bucks. And then it's like, oh, then there's one that has like all this crazy album art and that costs 500 bucks. And then there's like the ultimate deluxe crazy edition that costs a thousand, um, a thousand dollars. And it has, you know, maybe like a signed autograph or a personal letter. I don't know, but th th there's like this tiering system. And what then Reznor realized was that actually I'm making more money selling these $1,000 packages than I am selling 1099 CDs. So I should just like cater and try to grow this group versus trying to get like everybody on board. And I think that like, you know, there's no doubt that the visibility and accessibility of blockchain data makes this this like one-to-one -one relationship much more possible if you think about like the crazy mad dash that poor taylor swift fans have had to go through to even get tickets to her shows when some people are like die hard crazy swifties and then there's like i don't know like the dad who just was like i guess i should get my kids taylor swift tickets you know it feels like artists should be able to control and give more towards the people that like i don't know are most are most excited by what they're what they're making you know the ones that really care i i think that there's a there's a clear clear benefit to both artists and fans that web3 can actually solve
And this is why, like, I get a little bit annoyed <laughs> when I hear people like, yeah, well, like, what's the problem Web3 solving? It's like, well, there's actually a lot of pretty serious issues out here. I guess if I'm playing devil's advocate, is there any way that, like, the relationship that y'all are trying to build could just be facilitated through, like, a Web2 platform? Like, is there any way that would happen? I mean, I guess this could help if you talk through. I know what salsa is, but, but you know, uh, maybe it would help if you talk through a little bit about how y'all are solving that, I guess, like, that relationship problem between, like, artists and fans. Yeah, um, 100%. This is a really good point, actually, and something that we do ask ourselves a lot as well is, like, where is Web3 necessary and where could we do this in, with Web2 and where do the benefits kick in? And I do think that just zooming out for a second with Web3 in general, and that's why I think there is a lot of pushback and why it's sometimes also hard to justify why you're in this space and why it's the solution for these problems, is that a lot of the benefits will start happening um, when there's more adoption. And until then, it's quite hard to argue that you couldn't do it with Web2 tech. So to be really transparent, what we're doing today is pretty possible, which is Web2 tech. We believe that as Web3 gets more adopted, having the composability, having the data ownership, like truly be yours, um, is like the killer use case and is important. But yeah, to step back into what we're actually building and how this works, I think again, like easiest to use some examples. So we'll stick with the, you're the superstar DJ example, and you want to know who comes to your shows. So we we solve this through a bunch of different things where it's all about verifying that you're actually at the show in order to get you access into the artist's private community and give you what we call digital merge, which in the end is like an NFT. Uh, so the way that this works is, A, before the event, an artist would post maybe on their social media something like, hey, if you guys, you know, if any of you are going to my shows at any of my shows this summer, any of my, like, whatever, 10 shows that I'm playing, you can join my private community. And when people come in, they can verify their tickets beforehand, before the show, and we'll exchange that for an um, NFT, for a POAP in that sense, actually. Or if the show's currently ongoing, they can prove their, their location and can prove that they're actually there. After the show, there's also ways to get in by submitting pictures. And the pictures have metadata attached to them that we can use to, again, verify that you are actually at the show. And the reason why we're doing all of that is because what we're building are action-based communities versus just interest-based communities. On Salsa, it's not enough to just say, hey, I'm interested in Taylor Swift. I'm going to join this community. We feel like that's a very saturated market. And in the end, you know, all you were talking about before about like selling to the people who would pay 1000 for your, you know, deluxe whatever edition. It's about actually figuring out who these people are. And you need to keep the quality very high of the conversation in the community. And you kind of want to keep it almost pretty exclusive to only get people who really care. And so that's why we go through this pain of verifying that you've taken an action, which in this case is you've gone to an event in order to actually get it. And um, today, this data that we're producing, normally we use POAPs for it. And the benefit, of course, that we, we talk to artists about today is like, hey, that data is yours and you can use this data in other platforms as well, right? What you're producing with us, the data that, that we're producing for you, um, is something that you can use elsewhere. 
this is something you could use to um, integrate into your Shopify store and into your merch experience, or as you said, into something like Ticketmaster in the future to give people who already purchased tickets in the past um, access first. But I think the issue is still that all of these arguments sound really nice on the surface, but in the end, you know, I don't think the artists cared that much yet. And so coming back to what I said at the very beginning or what we talked about at the beginning with communication, what we just focus about on is like, hey, we're going to tell you who's at the shows, which is data you've never had before. That's what we do. And in terms of, you know, how that data is stored, the fact that you can use it in other places, that's all like quite out there for like your standard artist who is just like wants to make money, wants to know who their fans are and wants to create more work, like more creative work. That's what they want to do. They don't really care about data ownership that much yet, um, but they care about having the data. And so from a communications perspective, we don't pay that much attention to it. We just say like, here's a problem we're solving for you. In the background though, um, yeah, we truly believe that through composability and as you say, visibility and accessibility of data, um, we have to build on Web3 and we shouldn't be doing this in like a Web2 tech style. Yeah, this is... Um... This is like a pretty good segue to, to, I think, maybe the genesis or, like I say, this this motivation that keeps people in the space. Um, because I think that, like, you know, we, at Zerian, we talk a lot about Web3 citizens. Like, this is a term for us. And, like, the idea is that if you're a citizen, you know, you have skin in the game, but you also have, like, belief in, like, the overall success of, like, this entire project. Like, if you're a citizen of something, you know, you, you belong you know, you're here, it matters to you, right? Like just the general like progress and development of the entire space. And I actually think that there's a pretty strong parallel between that and like a fan in general of something. Like there's there's like this kind of like um, badge of honor, you know, that a fan of basically anything is able to like look at another person who also has that same badge of honor and like kind of have a bond there, um, even if it's an unspoken bond. And I think that there's a lot to this idea of facilitate, like using the benefits of blockchain composability data, as you mentioned, you know, to, to facilitate this, like, Hey, you're in the group. I'm in the group. Like we both have skin in the game here. And, and I'm just curious, like on a personal level, like if you could talk a little bit about what's still keeping you here, you know, like what is, I think that at least the, the, the sort of implied, um, you know, hit elephant in the room with this, with this show and what we're trying to do with it is like, there's a lot of reasons to like not be here or per perceptibly, you know, popularly recognized as a lot of reasons to not be in this space. And for you, where it's like, as a builder, looking at your own product and saying like, okay, where we are right now might not be where we are in five years. I don't know. What's, what's keeping you here? What, what is like the, 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 um, I guess like that, that, that kind of belief that is keeping you rooted in the web three space. I don't know if that's an easy thing to answer, but, but I'd be curious to know. I actually don't think it's that hard to answer for me. And it ties in a lot with what you just said about actually human connection. Mm. So I believe really strongly, and I love the term citizen that you guys have at Syrian. Absolutely love it. But I believe strongly that it's what we share in common is what makes us want to connect. And I also believe that in our modern world, we have a lack of connection and a lack of community. So because what you share in common is what makes you want to connect with other people, 
making that really visible and making that really available from lots of different data sources, that's what keeps me in the space. And I think here, you know, if you think about you, me, like anyone else, not in Web3, in Web3, it doesn't matter. We don't exist in one single platform. We interact digitally on so many different places and IRL, right? We listen to music here. We might buy a song over there. We go to an event, we purchase a ticket. There's so many different points and bringing that data together in one platform, having that data composability, that's what keeps me here. And so for example, on Salsa, if you entered, so we work with Blondish, this like big DJ. If you entered her community because you went to one of her shows, um, but you also bought a sound NFT from her, which is something she has, then that's really visible on your profile. And as you said, someone else can look at your profile and be like, oh, that's super dope. Like I also have that, you know, I also have that NFT. And um, that's what, what keeps me here. So I think if I have to say it shorter, the thing that keeps me in Web3 today is data composability. And on a more personal note, it is also the builder spirit. I think uh, this, what we touched on a lot with the dinners and with community and um, building the future together, this is something <clears throat> that I think is so much stronger in Web3 than in other industries because the industry as a whole is like on a path to product market fit. There's like this excitement around helping each other. And I think that if you're building a B2B SaaS and you're just using like a business model that's existed 150 times and, um, you know, building the next, I don't know, grocery pickup app or something like that, that's also not B2B SaaS, but something that's like, really, there's a template. It's war. Like, it's just war. You know exactly what you're doing and it's just war out there versus in our industry. It's like, yeah, no one quite knows what the future will look like, but we're building it together. And I think that's something that fits much more with who I am as a person and how I want to work and live my work life as well. Love it. Yeah, there's a there's a really positive us against the world vibe uh, in Web3. And I, I yeah. just like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's not totally why I'm still here, but I, I do, um, I identify so much with this idea of like the builder spirit, this like um, almost like rebel, you know, in, if you're like a Star Wars nerd like me, this like rebel alliance type feel to this thing, you know? And I think that actually this is the type of messaging in general. This is the type of language. We talked a lot about language earlier. Like this is the type of language that I think really is going to ultimately allow us to like start to reach people who maybe aren't in the space now. Um, there's a lot of belief that, that like the market conditions and clearly there's, um, you know, a market element to our space still. But I think that ultimately what wins, you know, is going to be like when we can can reach people and convince people that what's going on in this space in, in crypto and Web3 is like a lot more than just like, you know, numbers on a chart. It's it's a lot more about like what is actually enabled with this technology. You know, if we're the, I guess, like in the car and the the the, the an engine analogy from before, it's like the 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 car is so much more valuable in some ways than like the engine that enables it. And I think that's probably where we're where we're trying to head and you know, where, where we ultimately will win. Um, but that's, you know, I think actually we're, we're, we're pretty much out of time now. And I just want to say thanks so much, Helena. You've, you've been a great first guest, my, my first ever first guest. So I so appreciate it. And I just, uh, I just really can't wait to, to head to one of your dinners next time. So thanks so much for coming. Yes. Next one is actually going to be in New York. I'm doing a special edition New York dinner and then back in London, maybe a Christmas one just before everyone goes off for the holiday. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it.
Thank you so much for having me. This was uh, my favorite conversation so far. I'm really excited to listen to all the episodes of this podcast.